Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Sam Bates, who is experienced in all aspects of the real estate syndication process, really got an expertise in, in acquisitions and asset management. So we're going to dive into that and, and I'm excited to have him on the show today. So Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marcus. I really appreciate um, being invited to this show and look forward to sharing um, some of my knowledge and add value to your listeners. Perfect. Yeah, no, uh, we had a little conversation beforehand. It sounds like you got a vast amount of experience on on really the full process of syndication. So I really want to dive into that. And first, I'm going to give you a little bit of a intro first, and then I'll let you take it away. But a little bit about Sam. He is a partner of Trinity Capital Group that is based in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Sam's background is in financial services, state and local taxes, and real estate. He has been directly involved in the acquisition, rehabilitation, disposition, and management of around $75 million in multifamily and single-family real estate since 2009. So, yeah, it sounds like you got, like I said, a ton of experience and you've been in this game for a little while now. So, could you kind of tell us about how you started off in real estate, how you got involved with it, and and kind of what you're working on now? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm went to school and got my undergrad in finance and i honestly thought i was going to go and get my master's in real estate um but in between the summer of undergrad and grad school i had a job with ubs or an internship at ubs um and i really liked it and enjoyed it and they gave me a full-time offer so i stayed out in california and worked as an investment analyst um putting portfolios of high net worth clients together um, and then I decided to go back to grad school and I thought I was going to stay in the financial services industry and the market crashed at that point. And I felt like I couldn't raise capital or raise money from people and see their portfolio just completely lose 30, 40, 50%. That's completely out of my control. Um, so I got a job and after grad school, it was a consulting job. And I didn't enjoy it. And I was like, I can't, I'm not going to spend 40, 50 years for the rest of my life working in corporate America. So I started, started reading books and got interested in investing in real estate again. And I was a limited partner in a 208 unit deal initially um, in Dallas. And we bought it at about the bottom of the market and should have done phenomenally well. We, we averaged about 8% over the whole period, but there was a lot of things that went wrong. And that made me realize that I, I wanted to take a more hands-on approach. Um, so then I started buying single family homes. And for three or four years, I bought close to 20 single family homes and either flipped them, um, I developed one, or I would hold them long-term. I still probably have about eight in my portfolio right now. And then um, I started looking at small apartment homes or apartments. Um, and I ran into a guy at, I used to work with at one of my consulting firms and, um, he was looking to do the same thing. So we decided to partner up and, um, we brought in a third partner 
who had roughly 20 to 25 years at that time of construction experience. And we started building um, an apartment. Well, our first development was a mixed use apartment and retail space. And it's just kind of went from there over the last four years, we've done 11 projects, mostly acquisition um, and development of apartments, but we also have an RV park, we have a land development um, and things like that. So we don't focus specifically on multifamily. We look at the overall return for our investors and try to put the investors in the best return spot that they can. Perfect. Yeah, that's great highlight. And it sounds like you really got, well, started out your career and you're like, well, this I don't know if I want to do this my whole career. What else, what other options do I have? And you kind of found your way into real estate, which is a great place to be. And kind of making that first jump into doing more into the multifamily and, and, and real estate investing, you went into the, the passive approach. So it sounded like you, you transitioned from passive into active. Talk about that first experience as a passive investor, maybe things that you learned, things that you liked or didn't like. Um, yeah, we really want to educate the passive investors that listen to this show as well to kind of yeah, figure out if they're looking for it for the first time, what things they should consider as a passive investor. Yeah, definitely. Um, and honestly, I went into it probably with rose colored glasses and thought it'd just be a great deal. And um, I invested with a guy who'd been in real estate for 20 years. And I just felt like he had a great hold of the market and understood it. And I learned he was a great salesman, but he probably wasn't the best operator. And um, he self-managed the property and he actually removed himself from it because he just couldn't handle the client base or the tenant base. And he didn't realize how it was in a good area, Dallas, but there's pockets in that submarket that's really rough. And we were in one of those rough submarkets. And that was 10 or 12 years ago. And I didn't know what I know now in real estate. And at that time, I would have asked a lot more questions, to be honest with you. Um, but I think you need to ask how, if they're self-managing or if they're going to bring in a third party, what their processes are, what's their track record, um, just a lot of questions, how, how they handle uh, conversations, how they um, send communication to the investors. Because like initially when everything was great and it looked rosy, he was sending out monthly or maybe even bi-weekly communication during the rehab process. And as soon as things got a little rough, the communication stopped. And um, after he removed himself, he brought in another third party or a third party property manager. They couldn't do the job. We fired them. He stepped down as the general partner. We had to bring in two limited partners to take over the GP and brought in a third party manager. And luckily it was turned around. And um, I think a lot of that was due to the market and how the market's just increased over the last 10 years. And that, that just made me realize I needed to be a lot more hands-on um, and dig into the financials, dig into the books. I have that background where I understand how to read P&Ls and what a balance sheet is, um, things like that. And instead of relying on somebody doing it on a, a daily basis, I need to take an active role. And a lot of people, especially that go to guru trainings or seminars or read one book, they don't realize how active you need to be as the general partner in real estate. <laughs> and you can't just trust a third party property manager to do the job. You have to stay on them constantly. It's human nature. If you aren't 
they're being pushed or you aren't um, having somebody in your all, ear all the time, you might let off the gas. And I think that was part of it. Um, also the clientele, like I mentioned, we had shootings, we had um, a manager on site still from us. There was just a lot of issues that I, I learned on what to do once I was actually the general partner uh, on the deal. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the big highlight there is really that you want to know who you're investing with exactly. as a passive investor, right? That's the biggest thing when it comes down to this type of investment. It comes down to management, 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 right? Those are those are the key things, right? And yeah. and um, it, it's not always the deal. Like it can be a great deal or a great property in a great location, but I mean, there, there can be significant differences in how it's managed simply just by who's the sponsor or the operator of that deal. So it really comes down to knowing who you're investing with and, and having that, that trust that, Hey, they have a track record, they know what they're doing and you can trust them. And, and um, yeah. And, and another point I want to highlight there is what you had said, like their communication kind of just, well, essentially stopped or didn't communicate the bad things. And I think, I mean, in real estate, it's not always going to be rosy. Like there are going to be things, there's going to be hiccups. And the biggest thing I think is having that transparency with investors to be like, well, this, you know, this went wrong. We're taking care of it. Like the, the better thing to do is just literally communicate, like maybe over communicate, but um, exactly. yeah, give them the, give them the full picture at least as a passive investor. Like, I mean, they deserve to know what's going on and I mean, they're trusting you with their money. So they want to know about things and not just say, Hey, everything's great. Everything's rosy. And then when behind the curtains, everything isn't, um, that's not being fair to the past investors and sound like that kind of gave you a, a negative taste in your mouth. So, and, and you knew you could kind of improve on that. So let's talk about now that transition into you going active. Um, my understanding is you have a great kind of background and experience in, you know, upfront getting, looking at deals, sourcing deals and, and, and acquiring them and going through that acquisition underwriting process. So what are some of the really important things that you look for when you're underwriting a potential deal? Yeah. Um, and we, we have assets about to be in three or I have assets that's about to be in three states and we aren't in primary markets. Most of our assets are in secondary or tertiary markets. Um, but I think they correlate well with what people should look for if they're wanting to invest in a major market. Um, always look for population growth and seeing how fast the economy is growing. Luckily, since we are based in Texas, our job growth and just um, population growth throughout the state has exploded the last 10 to 20 years. Um, so I've been very fortunate about that, but I also want to look at it from a holistic standpoint and see median income, um, depending on what class, like if we build an A class, I want the median income to be higher, but if I'm looking to purchase a B or C class, I want the median income to be at least $40,000 or higher, preferably probably 45,000 because it's hard to push rents when somebody's only making 30 or it really even $40,000. Um, so you got to be cognizant about that. And one thing I've learned um, is there's a few companies such as Chick-fil-A or Orange Theory that put a lot of marketing or a lot of research into where they're building. And I'll look for different um companies and restaurants and see how far it is from a specific location. And I don't have a rule of thumb. If it's two miles, I will or won't invest. But if there's not a presence of certain um, restaurants or certain chains, that's something I'll, I'll take into consideration if we really want to go in there. 
because I always want to be in the path of progress or in a growing market. Um, and then from like the specific deal standpoint, I'll look at expense ratios and bad debt and a lot of the different um, metrics, like if if they're lost to the lease, how, how much it is, how much we can capture and lost the lease. Um, there's a lot of different metrics, but I, I do focus on bad debt because if you're at a, say your physical occupancy is 100%, but your economic occupancy is 80%, that's a completely different ballgame. So Yeah, could you actually explain that? I mean, some yeah. people aren't even aware of that, like what that actually means. They just think, hey, you, you look at the occupancy number and that's kind of the, the end-all be-all number that you look at, but kind of decipher what those two different uh, metrics mean, economic versus uh, physical occupancy. Yeah, I can definitely go into it. Um, physical occupancy is obviously the percent of units that are occupied. And then economic occupancy makes up several different factors, includes loss to lease, which the higher your loss to lease is means the lower your rent is compared to your market rent. So if your market rents a thousand and you're getting 900 for a unit, your loss to lease is a hundred dollars. Um, then you take in concessions, bad debt. Um, there, there's a lot of things that go into the economic or uh, yeah, economic occupancy. But because if you're giving concessions away or if tenants can't pay, um, it, it just adds up. So if you're for easy purposes, um, if your net offer or your um, gross potential rent is a hundred thousand a month, but you're getting ninety thousand a month, your economic occupancy is ninety percent. So um, if a broker's touting it's one hundred percent occupied, but if economic occupancy is at ninety percent, that's really the only number that matters at, at that specific point. Obviously, once you take it over and operate it, you want to improve that. But sometimes it's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> or sometimes it takes time because like a, a tenant, if they just signed a lease and they're paying 100 or 150 less per rent than market rent, that loss of lease is going to carry forward throughout the, the term of their lease. Yeah. And that's something that's so important to look at right now, especially because, I mean, yeah, there's that the pandemic in place and more and more people, like everybody still needs a roof over their head. You know, there might be eviction restrictions or things like that for people that aren't paying. So in depending on what type of asset it is, whether it's lower class and a lot of people aren't paying, um, you could potentially have that, right? If you're kind of a rookie in this game and you get fooled by the broker's uh, offering memorandum about the particular deal where it says, yeah, it's 100% occupied. But, you know, the key thing that you actually want to know is, well, what's the economic occupancy? how many people of those 100% units are actually paying, right? Because that's going to, what hits your bottom line and, and drives the income is payments, not people sitting in there and, and kind of taking a free ride by not paying their rent. So that's a really important thing to look at, especially now. So kind of go through that process of when you get, get an offering memorandum, you get details from a broker, how do you kind of go about actually analyzing that? Do you have a kind of a standardized pro forma or financial model that then plug it into kind of walk us through that process of really analyzing it and digging into the numbers. Yeah. Um, the, I always look at the T12 rent roll and then the broker sends out an operating memorandum, but it's their job is to sell the property. So some, bro some brokerage shops are more notorious than others, but I feel like all their pro formas are the best picture possible. Um, and 
they'll project income a lot higher than it might actually be. And then expenses are always lower than what they're going to turn out to be. So we have a model that I, I put in the information and um, we pro form out, depending on the whole period, usually if it's a new build and granted with a new build, we don't have an operating memorandum. It's all of our research and third party reports and things like that, but we'll pro form out anywhere from five to 10 years. And um, depending on the projects, if we're going agency debt or if we're going um, bridge financing or a construction loan, I'll fill in those um, loan terms. And that can kind of, that varies greatly depending on what you're going to get. And you can't get agency debt in the States unless the property is 90% occupied. So anything below 90% is considered unstabilized. So you have to get short-term financing or bridge financing. And those, those terms are usually a little more advantageous, but the interest rate's higher. So it's more expensive than what agency debt is. So um, there's a lot of factors to consider when you're underwriting the deal and looking at it. And then I'll look at, there's multiple websites. I'll look at comps just to make sure that the rental rates that I think we can project and what we can get or actually what we can get compared to other properties in, in that submarket. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, it's kind of changed the way that they're underwriting deals right now with just uncertainty in the market um, with the pandemic and different things like that. So how has that kind of changed your projections? Because at the end of the day, that's really what they are. They're just kind of like estimates based on using the research available from past um past results and then trying to predict how it might trend in the future. But nobody at the end of the day has a crystal ball. And if you do, then they probably wouldn't share their share it with others. They'd just be making millions and, and knowing exactly what's going to happen in the economy. But how is that kind of impacting the way that you're underwriting deals? I mean, everybody uses that line. Well, we're conservative in our assumptions. So kind of how do you put that into practice and how are you going about maybe underwriting your deals differently right now? Um, in some ways, I feel like I've become more conservative. Um, and then another way I'll get into in just a minute, I've become more aggressive from the information we have. But um, it is difficult to underwrite a five-year pro forma. I mean, most companies will budget out for a year. And throughout that year, they have to recast or um, true up on financials. So to do five years is really hard. Um, but right now... If I'm underwriting a deal today, I'm not gonna assume any rent growth in year one because I don't know what's gonna happen in 2021. Um, I think the economy is gonna start going ahead and hopefully we're out of Corona as much as possible, but I heard that there might be a four to six week basically lockdown across the United States. <laughs> and if that's the case, rents are gonna hurt um, but then in years two through five, it honestly depends on the market. Um, like for a lot of the markets, I'll underwrite 2% rent growth. Um, but we're looking at deals in Austin where rent growth has been above 3% significantly for the, I don't know, the last 10 to 20 years. So I'll put in usually three to three and a half percent for Austin. So it just depends on the market. But um, in the past, I always underwrote where the reversion cap rate, which is the exit cap rate on a deal, was always at least 10 basis points per year higher than what the going in cap rate is. But now with 
we have a lot of certainty where interest rates are going to stay the same, which is the interest rates and cap rates have been correlated really closely the last few years. Um, and with as much dry powders out there and just money coming into multifamily from other asset classes. And I think multifamilies has just become very popular because how well it's done over the last 10 or 12 years that I don't see cap rates decompressing. So I usually now the, the past year or so I've kept the cap rate at the same purchase cap, which in the past, it was always significantly higher. Right. Yeah. And, and everyone's kind of seen that you see a lot of money flooding towards like multifamily in general, because it's, it's performed so well over the last 10 years, it's shown it's been resilient yes. really for now it's coming up on almost coming to a year now, believe it or not in this pandemic, but yeah, it's just shown its resilience amongst all the other real estate asset classes as I mean, people still need a roof over their head and, and it's, it's still been performing well. People have been making payments, uh, occupancies. I mean, depending on the A, B or C class type of asset and location, it's going to vary, but overall the it's, it's shown its resilience in this time. And it's just kind of reinforcing people's well, as they assess where they want to allocate capital, it's it's kind of been one of those those gems where people are looking at it. Well, it's it's even more attractive right now because cap rates have stayed stayed steady, and uh, I mean prices are seemingly even getting bit bit up um, even over this time period. So it's it's definitely an interesting asset class to be in right now. So um, how do you kind of go about through that process of kind of arranging what type of debt to get on the deal, like? Um, obviously that's going to correlate with how you kind of structure your exit strategy, how long you're potentially holding it, but yeah, what are the things you really consider when you're going out and shopping for the type of debt that you're going to uh, arrange for a project? Yeah. Um, right now we're looking mostly at, uh, floaters and looking at floating rate debt, because usually they only have a 1% prepayment penalty where if you get fixed rate debt, in commercial real estate, you'll have either yield maintenance, um, which carries a prepayment penalty or step down, which also carries prepayment penalties. And on a couple of our assets, we're locked in. Granted, they're new assets, so we want to hold it long term, but we're locked in for 10 years. And the prepayment penalties are really large if we decide to sell right now. But on the acquisitions, everything, everything this year I've looked at, I've tried to underwrite with a floater because the floaters usually dependent on the asset and the market, um, the floating rate um, proceeds are sometimes higher than the fixed rate and the interest rate has been pretty similar. So if you buy interest rate cap, you're eliminating the risk of the interest rates rising and um, interest rate caps, they, they're priced depending on how large the loan is, but they're pretty reasonable for, the security it provides. Right. So is there, I know you've mentioned that you're kind of agnostic to the types of deals that you look at, whether it be like mobile home parks, development, um, or even stabilized multifamily. Is there kind of like a, a, let's going into the multifamily route. Is there any type of specific business plan that you kind of see as cookie cutter for your, your company on like what you like to do, whether it's, let's call it a, a, a deeper uh, rehab type or value add project, or is it more like a core type asset where it's, you know, there's a little bit of operational inefficiencies that you can improve on. Like what are, what are the main things that you look to do um, when you go acquire a, a property? For so far, all the assets we've acquired, we've had a similar, I guess, cookie cutter mentality and renovation process. We've been buying 
newer assets. Um, a few were in the 2000s. We had one in the late 90s. And it was basically going in, putting lipstick on a pig. I had to use that, but they weren't that outdated or there wasn't functional obsolescence that we need to go in and fix. Um, but there's operational efficiencies, operational inefficiencies in all the properties. Um, and that was where we add a lot of value. Um, like on one property through the renovation, um, we bought it in March of 19 and we've been able to increase rents on average by like $275 um, because there's a hotel operator that treated it like a hotel and um, they weren't pushing rents. They weren't charging back for utilities. They were paying for the tenant's cable. Um, just a lot of things that isn't standard, <laughs> standard practice in multifamily. Um, but I feel like right now, so many people have went in and bought multifamily, then they've renovated it and sold it. And now it's on the second, third, fourth generation. There's not a whole lot of really deep value add projects you can do. And when you can find them, the cap rates aren't that much significant compared to some of the easier turns and they aren't that much higher than some of the um, going in and just changing the operations on an asset. So that's where we've been focusing. We're under contract right now on an asset that will be our largest renovation, um, but it's only 1.3 to 1.4 million. So it's, it's definitely not a deep value add like some operators do. Yeah, and like I've kind of heard this comment before, but there is only so much value add out there. There's only yeah. so many properties out there with you know, a lot of distress. And, and I mean, a lot of people are looking for that. So there's going to be competition and, and people looking for them. So um, it doesn't, it, it's not a bad thing to go into those types of assets that, Hey, like you said, put a little bit of lipstick on them. They're not like a deep value add where you got to do structural or major CapEx items, but there's no problem with buying something that's 20 years old and just may be a little bit outdated um, is in a great location state. Like you're really de-risking it because you're already have great cash flow in place. Um, it's a, it could be in a great location, great neighborhood and great asset. And with that, if you're getting it, buying at a little bit of a lower cap rate, that also allows you to any dollar that you add to the NOI, then that actually, you know, multiply, you have a higher multiple when you look to sell it, right? If you're buying at a five cap, like that's a 20 times multiple for any dollar that you add to the net operating income. So um, those little tweaks that you make when you find a little operational inefficiencies, or you can raise the rents at, at all on those lower cap rate properties, you can actually have, you know, incremental value that you're added to the, the, you know, final sale price. So that's a great thing to consider for, for those that are kind of determining where they want to be, you know, in deep value add or kind of more of that core type asset. Um, is there any particular deal that you kind of want to highlight just from a high level? Like what was the age of it? What was the, the business plan? And, and potentially if you exited it, like what, what was, what did that look like? Yeah. Um, since I mentioned that last acquisition, I can touch on it. Um, it was, a uh, 2005 vintage and it's in a it's in mississippi but it's a suburb in memphis tennessee and i had a relationship with a broker and we we talked back and forth several times about different deals but none of them had penciled out at that point and then this one came across my desk and all the numbers seemed to work and we submitted an loi and we actually weren't the seller's first choice i don't know exactly what happened, but the buyer and seller kind of agreed to terms on the PSA. So they came back to us and said, do you want it? I was like, yeah, we, we want it. And um, one thing I learned during that process, 
during the capital raise process, a lot of our investors are based in Texas or New York. And for some reason, they had a negative connotation about Mississippi. And they we had a hard time raising capital. This is the most difficult capital raise we ever did. And we put in, honestly, 30 to 40% of the equity. And I'm glad we did because it's turned out to be a phenomenal project. And um, we were supposed to close in December of 18. And there's a lot of zoning issues um, with the property. Like it was built outside the city limits in the city annex that area, but they never changed it, the, the zoning. So we had to go through, or the seller went through a zoning process. So we didn't close on until March of last year. And like I was kind of mentioning, they were just, the previous property manager and the owner wasn't operating it efficiently. Um, the manager on site, we quickly learned that she was lazy. She liked the tenants and if she liked the tenants, she would basically give them kickbacks. Like she never signed leases for tenants. They, a lot of the leases that we did find, the tenants were paying less than what was stated on the lease. Um, the, the owners didn't realize that. Uh, and there's just a lot of things that a business shouldn't be doing <laughs> to, to function properly. And we went in and we added rubs to the property and we've been incrementally increasing rents. And we've got um, probably increased rents and rubs by like $275 over 16 months, 18 months or so. And now we've started the refinance process. Um, when we bought the property for six point for 8 million put in 500,000. So roughly right under 7 million. And we got an appraisal back for the refi at 10.7 million. So we added 3.6 million equity pretty quickly. And since it is a newer build, we're gonna refi and distribute over hundred percent or should be over hundred percent of investor capital back to the investors and then hold long-term. Um, the That city's growing, Amazon's, building a uh, location there and a lot of other large companies are starting to build um, either warehouses or or sites around that city. So we think it's it's going to be a great long-term deal. Yeah, that's kind of that perfect example of finding a property that, yeah, it's just not being optimized, right? Not running it like a business where it could be, let's call it quote unquote, a, a mom and pop type operator or someone like that that's just not looking to to maximize the potential rent and and the potential income that you can get from it it could be just like hey i've owned this for the last 20 30 years and things are going well i you know i don't want to be bothered with keeping up with all these you know rent increases or figuring out how to optimize income or decrease expenses and they're just kind of like well it's performing well for me and that's good enough for me but that's where uh groups like yours can kind of come in and look to optimize things and, and just increase the the, the NOI that you're generating off of property. And, and like you said, like increasing the value $3.6 million, that's, that's, you know, substantial amount just by coming in there and operating it more effectively than the prior owner. So a lot of opportunity like that out there when you just kind of see inefficiencies and, and um, you know, improving upon them. So um, I actually kind of want to start wrapping up the conversation here, take it into the final four questions. So I know I didn't prep you for any of these, so we'll, we'll see how it goes here. So what is your favorite real estate or business book? I read it last year, two years ago now, but it's Sam, Sam Zell's. Um, I mean, he's a real estate mogul and icon and just hearing his story give, give, gave me a lot of insight and I hope to get to his level one day. 
And um, it's, it gave me something to achieve in a, or to aspire to, to be. Yeah. Was it his biography or something like that? Um, Cause I know no, it's well, it, I have it on my phone. I can tell you what the name of it was. I can't think of the name of it. I'm thinking, like, yeah. Cause I know, um, I know I read one of those books by Sam Zell and uh, it was, or is it the one called, am I being too subtle? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of as well. So that was interesting, really interesting book. I agree. It was a lot of great insights and, um, obviously Sam's out kind of a real estate mogul, you'd call him, right. Just kind of done amazing things in the space. So, um, yeah, I know I've kind of went through that and learned, learned a lot from this book and really enjoyed it as well. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? How important networking and connections are. Um, when I got into real estate, I, I was, 25 or 26 and um my network wasn't as large as it was or as is now and everybody i've known or like been able to speak to i think has helped me in some way or connected me somehow and they say it's not what you know but who you know and specifically in real estate (laughs) i think that's very key um and then just maybe one a i think i've over the last probably six or seven years, I've been a continuous learner. And up until that point, I wasn't. And I've read probably 150 books over the last three years or so. And just the knowledge and information I've gained from it um, is invaluable. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of a common theme you kind of hear across numerous people in this in this real estate field, especially, I know a lot of people that I've interviewed already, It's those are key things, right? The network that you grow, and also the the education and that constant learning because I mean, real estate is always evolving and you kind of got to stay on top of those things and, and kind of be a lifelong learner. So next thing here, what is a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? When I was reading all the books, it was probably three or four years ago now, I read Miracle Morning and that had a huge impact on my life in terms of, that was one of the first books I've read. And after that, I realized I needed to just continue to read as much as possible. Um, And for people who don't know what Miracle Morning is, it's a guy who was a life coach and he put together six morning routines that a lot of successful people do, but most successful people only do one or two on a daily basis. And he combined all all six and the acronym SAVERS and it's um, silence, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing, which is writing. And um, I don't do all six every day, but, or I might do like I exercise maybe at night, but um, I try to have all six of those woven into my life. And it's provided enormous dividends um, over the last four or five years. Yeah, I agree. It's a great book. And I know a lot of people have been impacted by that one for sure. And it's a great kind of habit to have getting up early in the morning. I know I struggle with that more now because I got a, a young, uh, well, he's coming up on eight months old now, a son and, uh, you know, hurt the sleep pattern a little bit for me, but it, anyways, that's all right. So last thing here, what do you like to do for fun? I honestly, my, before I got into real estate full-time, I'd say real estate, but now it's definitely a full-time job and I'm spending 60, 70 hours usually a week on it, but I've always loved sports. Um, growing up, I've played sports. Um, I still love to be outside and stay physically active or just watch sports. Um, and then 
there's some organizations in Dallas and across the world that I donate time and money to just to try to help better the community in Dallas and then communities abroad. Awesome. So really last thing here is how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you or potentially yeah, reach out in any way? Yeah, um, you can call me. My number is 972-855-7654 or email me sam at trinitycapitaltexas.com. Um, I'm on, I have social media accounts. I don't always check them, but you can also reach out that way. Perfect. Well, it was great to have you on the show today, Sam. Really appreciate you coming on, sharing a lot of your expertise. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure my listeners uh, enjoyed it as well. So thanks again for coming on and talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you, Marcus. I really enjoyed it and look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good. Take care. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.